Welcome to Fully Vetted, Animal Care News from the Clinic to the Farm, presented by the Ohio Veterinary Medical Association. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Fully Vetted. I'm Kristen Bennett. Today, we're discussing large animal abuse and neglect with Dr. Dennis Summers, state veterinarian for Ohio, and Dr. Alina Vale, official veterinarian for the California Horse Racing Board. They recently joined us to explain the nuances of livestock and equine abuse and share advice for small animal practitioners and humane agents who may be called upon to assess a potential case of large animal abuse. Without further ado, over to Mia for the interview. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fully Vetted Podcast. My name is Mia Cunningham and I am joined today by Drs. Alina Bale and Dennis Summers. Welcome you two. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So before we get into our topic today, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about your individual background. My name is Alina. I attended veterinary school at the University of California, Davis, and earned a master's degree in veterinary forensic medicine from the University of Florida. After completing an internship at an equine hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, I worked in Dubai for two years. Then back in California, I worked at a thoroughbred racetrack practice in the veterinary pharmaceutical industry and with researchers at UC Davis conducting pharmacology studies and resources. Now, as a regulatory veterinarian with the California Horse Racing Board, I investigate equine fatalities and conduct post-mortem examination reviews. I'm passionate about promoting the humane use of horses and chair the American Association of Equine Practitioners Welfare and Public Policy Advisory Council. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Summers? Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Dr. Summers. So I am a uh, 2006 graduate from the OSU College of Veterinary Medicine here in Ohio. From graduation until the mid part of 2014, I was a mixed large animal practitioner. I spent some time in in New England and uh, also in eastern Pennsylvania for a short time. But I spent most of my time here in Ohio and uh, I did a lot of large animal livestock work. Spent a lot of time in the dairy industry, a lot of time around horses. Uh, spent a lot of time working in the Amish communities. So I saw a different aspect of the horse industry that, that maybe not every veterinarian gets to see. And also did some, some large animal exotic, got some experience working with the servant industry and, and some of those other aspects that uh, we now actually regulate on the regulatory side. After about eight and a half years of private practice, I decided to work for the Ohio Department of Agriculture, and I've been here ever since. The Department of Agriculture, I've done a couple of different things. Um, I've, I've worked in field operations for both our Division of Meat Inspection and for our Animal Health Division. Both of those employ veterinarians as public health veterinarians or veterinary medical officers, depending on which division you're in, but uh, utilize those private practice skills in the regulatory aspect. And then uh, in 2018, I, I took more of an administrative role, and I was the assistant state vet, and then this year, I've also um, uh, assumed the role of state veterinarian. All the more reason why I appreciate you both making the time to, to meet with us today. Dr. Bill, can you walk us through just like a typical day as the official veterinarian for the California Horse Racing Board? Yes. So I actually work mostly remotely unless there's a big race or there's a lot of media attention that I need to be on site. I'm chair of the postmortem exam review program, and I also help with fatality investigations. So I first started working for the CHRB in 2019 when a cluster of equine fatalities at Santa Anita Park Racetrack garnered widespread public concern. 
So I drafted a comprehensive fatality report and really told the stories of these horses and also made recommendations for how the racing industry could adopt more of a culture of welfare and safety. And so in 2020, the CHRB enacted a new regulation that requires all equine fatalities to have a full postmortem exam review. Now, postmortem exams, the necropsy or autopsy, has been done on racehorses for over 30 years in California. But now I go beyond that and I review the training, the racing, and the medical history for each horse. And then I interview the attending veterinarian and the trainer. During the trainer meeting, I show images from the postmortem exam, and these may include pre-existing lesions. Sometimes these are subclinical. So that means that the trainer and attending veterinarian didn't know about these lesions um, prior to the fracture. We'll discuss diagnostic imaging that could be used to detect such lesions. And then I asked the owner, the trainer to reflect back and think about what they would have done differently, given the information that they have now. And then I write a report uh, for each equine fatality and a redacted summary of that report is available on the CHRB website. So the CHRB really believes in transparency and we want to show the public that we care about these horses and that we're doing everything we can to learn from them and make changes to improve the sport. Also, if a potential welfare violation or other violation is suspected, then a full investigation would be done for each case. So Dr. Bill, I'd like to ask you first, um, how common is equine abuse? We don't have data to know the true numbers. However, in most communities, small small animal cases far outnumber equine cases. And additionally, equine neglect is much more common than equine abuse. And Dr. Silvers, how about you? How common is livestock abuse? Yeah, I would agree with Dr. Vale. We don't have great data, although we actually do have a little bit more maybe from our livestock care standards investigations, which is not necessarily a welfare or a, uh, a humane authority, but we are able to quantify the number of investigations that we do a year here at our agency for that. We do get a fair number of complaints on our end about potential cases, either abuse or neglect. We have some limited authority here under our livestock care standards laws. In Ohio, we can actually go out and do some initial investigations to see if they meet those basic care and husbandry practices that are established under that Livestock Care Standards Board. And if if there was something that would pop up that our veterinarians or our inspectors per se felt was more egregious or more serious, it would get referred to the corresponding humane agency. So we, we kind of know where our boundaries are, but uh, for horses and abuse, it's sometimes challenging to quantify. And again, I agree with Dr. Vale. In a lot of these cases, you know, they're they're not always visible. Um, they're sometimes they're set off the road. They're in rural areas of Ohio, not always seen uh, by the general public versus dogs and cats per se that are much in much closer proximity and contact to, to the general public, or they may be taken out into public more freely. But, you know, with close neighbors and proximity for reporting and, and things like that, it's just a totally different way in which you may come across those as a, as a regulatory official. What Can you give me some common scenarios? So some of the common scenarios related to equine neglect would be a lack of routine care. So a thin horse without adequate or quality feed, uh, chronic untreated wound or other health conditions, long overgrown hooves or unsanitary conditions. Okay. So the next question on here, I feel like you've touched on that a little bit in terms of, you know, how does large animal abuse differ from small animal abuse? Do you want to go into further detail on that one? 
the 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 outwardness of the signs aren't always as apparent as you may see in a more egregious dog and cat type scenario. If you look at the commercials for you know HSUS and the and the dogs in the cages that are rail thin, I mean that's it's very clear that 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 was a long standing chronic thing. But um, you may not always see that with with some of the livestock. When we get complaints here at the Department of Agriculture that come through our livestock care standards program, what would be referred to as neglect or abuse may not always actually meet that definition. A lot of times it's just a lack of awareness of just what may be considered a normal husbandry practice or a normal body condition for animal. And we use the classic scenario of the beef cow versus the dairy cow, right? They they look different, but to the untrained eye or to somebody that's not in the agricultural world or they would look at a Jersey cow out in the field and say, hey, that thing is skinny and they're going to report it. It's not to say that it doesn't happen. Of course, we do have some that are pretty serious from time to time that we definitely refer, but just the nature of how the animals are used, they can be more stoic. They may not be as vocal in some instances. Again, just the location, there's a lot of different variables, but uh, a lot of the cases that we get are just they probably don't all fall to that level of what we consider a humane or egregious violations, but they may meet violations for basic care and husbandry. And so we do try to get them corrected and educate them on what would be considered a normal practice. Yes, I'll add that animal control officers in many communities may not have as much experience with horses as they do with small animals. So they may choose to invest their time and resources into small animal cases. So for example, planning a seizure for a horse, arranging a truck, trailer, where to house the horse, and all the associated expenses is really significant compared to the relative ease and cost of a small animal seizure case. Well, I I would imagine that experts in large animal abuse, and particularly forensics, are, are few and far between, which increases the burden on a typical humane officer or even a small animal veterinarian to recognize abuse. What are some red flags that they should be on the look for? Well, my advice for small animal veterinarians or animal control officers without equine experience is really to find a local equine vet that you can consult with in your community. And whether that means going and seeing potential cases together or having them review photos or documentation of a scene. Um, So the AAP, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, has a webpage, Get a DVM, to find equine veterinarians in the community. And AAP also has an equine abuse and neglect subcommittee. And there's a mentor program to help veterinarians and law enforcement with equine cases. Again, because equines are so different than small animal cases, it's hard to get that confidence and competence on equine. So I I do recommend asking for help. You're not always going to see signs of direct physical abuse. I think with large animals that you may see with small animals, the dog comes in with a fractured leg, broken ribs, lacerations. I mean, you, there, there, are some, there are some horrible things that people will do to, to small animals. You know, you don't always, I think, see those necessarily, at least from my personal experience, with the large animal side. This, the signs, the outward red flags may not always be as obvious, especially on the livestock side. You know, you have to understand what is normal versus extremely abnormal. And when you see extreme abnormal, that probably should start to trigger that there's a red flag, at least to just start questioning some things and and having a conversation. You know, a lot of times with the cases that we see for uh, neglect and abuse are just like what Dr. Vale said. 
chronic poor quality feeding, right? These animals are in pastures with no grass, no access to appropriate feed. It may be hay that looks like straw, which has basically no nutritional value whatsoever. Or it may just be some old moldy bale and they won't want to go to it. Or it's too far away for them to get access to the fence. Things like that, you know, chronic weight loss to the point where the animals risk. I mean, you're talking about months and months and months of this to get to the state where these animals lose, you know, several hundred pounds. Poor quality hoof care, that's another classic red flag. If you see horses, for example, that have really long hooves, that basically, we give the analogy, they look like skis. They actually start to have an upward curvature. That is should be a red flag right there, that something needs to be addressed. It may not be intentional. I think a lot of times it's poor education. But it's still neglect. You know, they they got the animals and then they realize they, they can't take care of them, but they have that responsibility and that's what we take seriously. But the red flags may not always be quite as obvious that you might see. Again, you know, I remember some emergency cases from small animal practice where a dog would come in and it would have a broken leg and um, broken ribs, things like that. But, you know, your spidey senses say something's not right about this case. The story that you're getting from the owner says there's something funny going on here. Or, you know, the family dynamic of the people bringing in the dog may tip you off that there may be something going on. You just have to kind of use your intuition and be very delicate with how you handle it. But um, sometimes those are much more obvious on the small animal side. I would, I say my personal experience with large animal abuse cases tend to be just chronic, poor quality husbandry that leads to this, this state of, you don't know if this animal can come back from that. You know, they kind of cross that threshold. To the trained eye, it should be relatively obvious that there's at least a red flag that warrants of picking up the phone and calling somebody to say, hey, I don't think this is right, but I need to, I need to double check with some other people and at least refer it. I am curious, Dr. Summers, when you talk about producers not being educated on proper care, how do, where do they get the education? Like, are they, are they cited at a certain point if they can't prove that they can care for the animals appropriately? Like, how does that actually work to make them responsible for providing the appropriate care for the animals? The vast majority of the cases that we are referred here are not going to be your larger commercial scale producers. They're going to generally be backyard type operations. They're going to be novice livestock owners. They're going to be people that may be relatively new to it or just are not really at the same level of a large scale commercial producer, you know, like somebody that has a backyard operation, they've got one horse and two beef cows, and they thought maybe they could start getting some calves and make a couple of bucks on it. Those tend to be the, the cases that we see because the industry in general, as large scale producers in Ohio, whether it's pigs or poultry or horses or, or cattle, the industry does it the right way. We are out there to filter out the ones that are the outliers and try to get them up to speed as well. Our education and outreach is based off of two principles. One, we file a formal investigation. We take the information we actually send and dispatch either a veterinarian or we'll at least send a livestock inspector. All of them have training and knowledge on what's considered normal care and husbandry for livestock. And, you know, we do an investigation. There's a procedure that we follow. And if they're found to be in violation of the livestock care standards rules, they are cited for it. That citation gives them time to A, come into compliance, right? So we give them time to correct the deficit okay. and then come back with a follow-up inspection at some future point. And we typically give them 
plenty of time. A lot of these cases, for example, like a horse that needs its hooves trimmed, it should probably be done in maybe two to three weeks, but you know, it, the full corrective measure may take multiple hoof trimmings, right? You know, at seven, eight week intervals, give or take, it may take a while for that horse okay. to get totally corrected. So we, we try to take that into account because we have an understanding of, of husbandry and, and there's basic principles. We provide education through either some handouts or some literature that we have here, or we can provide them access to hundreds of different documents that are either through extension or on the web that we've kind of gone through and looked at before. Or we just actually sit and talk to them because we are considered SMEs on this, right? I mean, we've got veterinarians, all of which have livestock experience. All of our livestock inspectors come from an agricultural background. It doesn't take long to just spend 20 minutes with them and just say, hey, look, a couple of things that you should educate yourself on would be, you know, what's considered good quality hay? How would you generally recognize good quality hay? How much should they be feeding it per day based on animal's body weight? How often should your, your hoof trimmer come out? You know, just little things like that, that, that you can get them up to speed on. But at the end of the day, all you can do is give them those recommendations. We don't have the capabilities to constantly be babysitting them perpetually, right? You, yeah. you hope that through the course of the corrective actions, that when you come back and follow up on the violations, that they're corrected and you see improvement. And we have done our job. But if we do go back and we find that they've not done those things or situations got worse, then we go to that next level too. We do try to spend some time, and I, I think our staff does an excellent job. They do spend quite a bit of time sitting there talking to them and following up with them on what's considered normal. If they don't feel comfortable, we refer them to other resources. There's plenty of information out there through the Ag Extension offices, 4-H Extension offices. You know, all they got to do is pick up the phone and call their county extension agent. So we, we just try to connect them with those other people and resources out there. That's, that's kind of how we take our approach. I would agree that equine neglect can be a lack of knowledge. For example, a first-time horse owner thinking they can keep the horse in their backyard instead of at a boarding facility where they can have a trainer and riding lessons. And so then they get overwhelmed and they can also have caregiver burden. Um, So where some individuals that had good intentions initially can have financial restraints or they might not be able to devote the time to commit to the horse. Some instances also become hoarding situations where owners try and help so many horses and then they can't care for them all. Education is a great first step before reporting. And I found a technique that can be helpful in some situations with potential neglect. It's called motivational interviewing. So it uses empathy and open-ended questions to allow either the animal control officer or the veterinarian to dig in and uncover the underlying issues or barriers, whether that's financial, time, um, denial, or unawareness of the problem due to uneducation um, that prevented the horse from receiving the care it needs and deserves. And you can add an education to this discussion and guide the owner to change their behavior and what care plans can they commit to? Because sometimes just making recommendations and telling them what to do doesn't get that behavior change and it doesn't lead to a long-term positive outcome. Uh, so, so Dr. Summers, I'm going to direct this to you. If, if you wouldn't mind telling us about a case of abuse that you were directly involved in and, and how it turned out. When I was in private practice, some horses were being confiscated by the county humane agency. They called us in to evaluate and triage and treat the horses. Their feet were just a classic scenario of those long hooves. And so the best care that these animals needed was just corrective trimming for their feet and get on a better plane of nutrition. But there were a few that I remember that were that were so thin that they were really having trouble moving around. 
And they, they were so chronically laminitic or had such bad laminitis in their feet that they couldn't walk. You could tell they were in pain. There was no amount of corrective shoeing. And so two of them had to be euthanized directly on the spot. That was the best thing that we could do for that animal. But I think in that case, the Humane Society did seize those animals. I'm sure the owners were charged. Whether or not they were convicted, I don't know. But aside from that, half of them had not really been touched by human hands. So that's the other factor that comes into that, especially with horses. With cattle, it's the same way too, but horses in particular, is that, you know, you think about if they're being neglected, they're not being cared for, they're probably not getting a lot of direct human contact. Because a lot of that that neglect and, and abuse potentially is just from lack of direct contact, right? You just, I just choose not to feed you very much, or I throw it over the fence, but I don't care for your hooves. So I'm not coming out and having that tactile experience with that animal, which makes it 10 times harder for us as veterinarians to do anything to help the animal. You've got a horse that's already flighty. So that just heightens that stress and anxiety. And it just, it's, I don't know how you find a positive out of that entire scenario. It's pretty much everything you're going to be doing is going to have, is going to be negative. And I was fairly young back then. I was only three or four years out of vet school, but you know, those memories stick with me now. Those cases in private practice always kind of stick out um, with those because they tend to be pretty, pretty severe, especially when you go down there and you realize that the best thing you can do is just humanely euthanize these animals. That's, that's, that's a really hard thing to do at the end of the day. Absolutely. So was there, was there anything else that you wanted to add that you don't feel like we got to, or would be important for people to hear? I do have one comment that I think would be a piece of advice just as, as Dennis, um, taking off my state animal health official hat, taking off my regulatory hat, just being a fellow veterinarian to our colleagues, especially to younger practitioners, is if your spidey senses say that you are seeing something that doesn't look right, you should talk to somebody about it. And there will be potentially a feeling of reluctance to report those or have those discussions because you're not quite sure if you should. You don't have enough experience in your belt. I can say that looking back, I probably had one or two cases where, boy, I probably should have talked to somebody about it. Like it just didn't set right. Like I wasn't sure if it was really meeting that, you know, because we're not regulators, you know, we're, we're just veterinarians, but we have some training. So my advice would be is, especially to younger practitioners on the large animal side, that if you're not quite sure, you know, talk to your senior vets, talk to your mentors and just say, hey, look, something about this just doesn't seem right. You know, when I got there, I was... I was really blown away by what I saw and, 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 you know, just use your judgment, but don't be afraid to say something. If, if you think that it's really crossing that threshold, I think you'll find that in the long term that would be a better way to go with that. But um, I, I can appreciate that there may be a reluctance for younger graduates to want to do that, especially when you're trying to uh, establish yourself and gain trust and credibility with your clientele. But, you know, if they have any questions, they can always call down here and talk to our livestock care standards crew where they can call another vet. But we've all been there, right? We've all seen those cases and we're not quite sure if we should talk to somebody about it or not. I agree. And these welfare cases can be so emotionally taxing for the veterinarian involved. So again, I encourage you, if you want to learn more about equine cases, to visit the AAP website. If you Google AAP and welfare, it should pop up. The webpage also has the link to the mentor program to discuss a case or a difficult situation that you're in. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you guys. You enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. To learn more about equine abuse and animal abuse in general, 
check out the 2022 Midwest Veterinary Conference Animal Abuse Track, which was recorded in February for the online portion of the conference. If you haven't yet signed up for the virtual MVC, please visit mvcinfo.org virtual to view the lineup and purchase access. Session recordings will be available through May 24th. That's a wrap on today's episode. Another thank you to Dr. Alina Vale and Dr. Dennis Summers for being on the show. And thank you to our listening audience for tuning in. As always, please feel free to visit fullyvettedpodcast.com for show notes and to provide listener feedback. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Like the show? Please submit a quick rating and comment on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like you. Until next time, stay safe and be well.